Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Once again, it is your favourite science show on the radio. I'm assuming it's it's your favourite. Oh, of course it's my favourite. I well, mean, I'm there are a lot the, of... I'm talking to the people out there. Oh, well, you weren't talking to me? Well, it's your favourite. I know it's your favourite. <laughs> How did you know if you never asked? Well, because you, you put so much work into this show, Claire... <laughs> That if it wasn't your favourite, it would be hard to justify. That's true. That's true. Another of my all-time favourites. Yes. Favourite people on the show today is Eliza Colgrave, who is a researcher at the Women's Hospital in Melbourne. And she studies endometriosis, which, if you didn't know, Chris, affects 10% of women, one in every 10 women. That's a surprisingly high number. Has um, endometriosis in different types of forms. So she studies the lesions that endometriosis causes as part of the disease. And um, she's going to come and talk to us about her experiences, about her research, and the fact that there's not a lot that we know and understand about this disease. Fantastic. Yeah. What do you have for us today? Well, I am looking, well, partly looking back in time, partly looking to the future, perhaps. 30 years ago in 1989, there was a huge controversial claim that some scientists had discovered cold fusion. It was going to be like free energy uh, out of a test tube, essentially like that. It turned out not to be the case, pretty much, although some people have still flying the cold fusion flag. And now Google has picked up that flag and they're running with that mixed metaphor and doing their, spending a bit of their own millions and millions and millions of dollars on doing some research to find out whether it's real or not. Right. So you, you've got an update for us on cold fusion. 30 years in the making. 30 years in the making. It's not a very exciting update. Well, I don't want to give anything away here, but yeah, don't, um, don't uh, burn your hot fusion reactors just yet. <laughs> on with the show. One in ten women suffer from endometriosis, but for such a common ailment, very little is known about the disease and how it affects women. But hopefully in the coming years, that will change, thanks to researchers like our guest today, Eliza Colgrave, who is completing her PhD at the Royal Women's Hospital. Eliza, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you so much for having me. So Eliza, what is endometriosis and how does it affect women? So endometriosis is quite a common gynecological condition where tissue similar to the lining of the uterus grows outside the uterus, forming um, lesions. And this can affect women in so many variable ways. Quite commonly, you hear experiences of pain symptoms and troubles with fertility. But at the same time, you can have um, asymptomatic patients uh, who don't find out that they have the disease until they have trouble conceiving. It's it's such a multifaceted condition, but the overarching um, commonality of the stories is that it has such a profound impact on women's lives in so many ways. And are these lesions, are they growing close to the uterus or are they growing in other places in the body? 
they can grow most commonly in the pelvic region, but I, there have been cases of uh, endometriosis growing in other parts of the body. So, for example, um, thoracic endometriosis. So would that be in the thoracic sort of like around the rib cages? Yeah, or? around your diaphragm, for example. I've heard a few stories of that. Basically, the theory is anywhere the bloodstream can go, endometriosis potentially could go, but we still don't completely understand that. We're, the focus is largely on understanding um, the pelvic disease. And what do we know about why some women um, have this disease, endometriosis? We're still working that out. It's We don't even completely understand what causes the disease, but we do know that your risk for developing endometriosis is half genetic and half other factors. So it's a very complex condition and um, every w- woman um, has a, a different makeup that's contributed to her developing the disease. The most commonly supported theory for how it actually starts how the disease how the lesions start growing outside of the uterus is this theory called retrograde menstruation retrograde menstruation yes so this actually this process occurs in 90 percent of all women regardless of if they get endo so when you're having your period the lining of the uterus is what's shed and that's that's what you menstruate but this tissue can also flow back up through the fallopian tubes and out into the peritoneal cavity in, in your pelvis And for some reason, in the 10% of women that develop endometriosis, the body doesn't get rid of that tissue or the tissue has different properties that allow it to plant on on the walls and the organs and develop into a disease. So we're still working, working out why that happens or how that happens and also if there are other causes of the disease because that's still not the 100% supported theory for how endometriosis develops. But there is some evidence that that is one of the ways that endometriosis Yes, yes. It's the most well-supported theory. Theory. Yeah. Wow. Now, your PhD research looks at endometriosis. How did you become interested in this area of women's health? Well, it was uh, all very selfish. I uh, have the disease myself and I was um, studying biomedicine at university and deciding what to do next when I finished my um, degree. And I started looking at going into research because I'd really enjoyed my research projects um, throughout undergrad. And... Lo and behold, there was a project in the booklet about endometriosis. So I went to an event and met with a supervisor and it felt like the natural next step to go and engage in this weird form of self-exploration and try and better understand this disease I had that no one seemed to understand and had no cure for me. And um, if you can allow me to ask, um, how did your disease present itself initially? Yeah, of course, nothing's off limits. I talk about this all the time, just ask my friends and family. Um, I, for as long as I can remember from my first period, had quite severe pain around the time of my period. And um, I was always told that that was a normal part of being um, a woman. It was a rite of passage. It happened to my mother and now it was my turn. But as I um, continued into my teens, the, the pain became more severe and started occurring outside of my period. And my cycle kept being very weird. I was, you're supposed to have your period once a month. I was getting mine every two weeks. It was having such a heavy impact on my schooling. I was, you know, skipping out on classes. And it wasn't until the point that I was nearly passing out from the pain that we recognised that maybe this wasn't normal anymore. And I started to um, investigate if something was wrong. So yeah, it was a long journey and it took me until the age of 18 to get a diagnosis. But that's um, actually quite a good happy story. There are women that take up to 10 years or more to get a diagnosis because first they have to recognise that this is abnormal and secondly, find the right doctor to send them on the right path to diagnosis. 
And um, what does a path to diagnosis look like? So initially uh, you present to your GP with your symptoms uh, and if they uh, have an understanding of the symptoms of endometriosis, they will point you in the direction of a a gynaecologist who specialises in endometriosis. And then um, to officially diagnose the disease, the gynaecologist will perform a laparoscopic surgery uh, where the disease is visualised during the surgery and then the main treatment is to actually excise those lesions I mentioned and remove them. Um, and that's often followed up with uh, pain relief treatment and um, hormone-based medications like the pill to try and keep the disease and the symptoms at bay. So that sounds like quite a invasive um, diagnosis. Oh, completely, yeah. Going under the knife to just mm. find out whether you have a disease or not. Is there any current research that is looking to make that diagnosis less invasive? 100%. It's one of the main drivers of research at the moment and we're forever looking at new ways to diagnose endometriosis less invasively because that's half the reason I think that it takes so long to get diagnosed. You have to have an invasive, dangerous surgery to to get a, a diagnosis. You know, if you had a teenage girl present to you with symptoms you'd probably think, oh, maybe she's just growing into puberty over, okay, let's put her under the knife and check if she has endometriosis. So there's a massive amount of focus in research on finding a biomarker in the blood, for example. Um, And there's, there's a lot of work still to be done on that because it's proving to be quite a quite a um, diverse disease, as I said. There's, there's no one commonality with all these patients um, that's been discovered just yet. Extremely diverse, but also extremely common. Yes, 10% of women, maybe even more for all we know, which is insane. You, if you know 10 women, you know someone with endometriosis. <laughs> Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science, where Claire is talking to medical researcher Eliza Colgrave about endometriosis. Now, can we talk a little bit about your PhD research? What area of endometriosis do you work on? So I'm based in the lab and I'm very lucky at the Royal Women's Hospital that we have a huge program that recruits women who come through our clinic and have an endometriosis um, diagnosis. So I have access to a large body of tissue, including the lesions, and that's where my project is focused on. I'm um, characterising the cell types and tissue types that make up those lesions because we currently don't know a lot about what the makeup of lesions are and whether that has any correlation with symptoms um, or the patient's medical history and if that could have implications for treatment. So when you say the makeup of the lesions or the makeup of the cells, what do you mean there? So I'm, I'm looking for um, specific different cell types okay. and seeing if uh, the expression of those cell types and the, or the amount of those cell types varies between lesions based on a long list of factors. So the location of the lesion, the patient's age, her menstrual cycle stage, because since this tissue is like the lining of the uterus, not the same as but like, there's a theory that perhaps maybe it cycles like the normal endometrium. Perhaps these lesions bleed at time of menstruation. That's quite a, a commonly suggested theory. Um, so I'm looking to, to see if I can confirm that this is the case uh, and if we, that has any clinical implications, perhaps we might discover a new therapeutic target or a new way to approach patient treatment. For example, does this patient have these symptoms? Her disease looks like this. Therefore, once we've completed surgery, we should try this hormone treatment, she should try the marina. That's the most likely treatment to keep her symptoms at bay. So what have you found so far? 
So far, I've confirmed that it's such a heterogeneous variable disease. And um, for everyone playing at home, that means... It's very diverse. Yeah, very diverse, very complicated. No two patients are the same. No two patients are the same. Even within one patient, if she has had lesions taken from multiple different locations, those lesions can be quite different. Right. Which is really interesting and could could, um, uh, have significant implications for, for maybe the concept of endometriosis being a progressive disease have these three lesions that look like x been there for longer than these three lesions that look like y oh my goodness and so and so how um how is the research that you're doing how do you imagine it's going to help future women with the disease the big dream for my research findings is that it starts a long line of work that might contribute to uh, an effective way of classifying and, and stratifying the disease um, we have we have a current classification system um, that surgeons use to grade women from stage one to four. So one um, being, you know, very few lesions that don't penetrate very deeply and four is there's lesions everywhere, adhesions everywhere, you know, organs are stuck together and it's quite deep and infiltrating. So that's, that can present as part of the disease, not only sort of these lesions or like what, like an internal sore type thing, mm, mm. Um, but also adhesions. So yeah, it can involve whole organ systems. Um, sometimes when uh, we have really horrible. severe cases, they have to get other specialists involved in the surgery because it's infiltrated the bowel or another part of the body and it's beyond the scope of just one surgeon to, to deal with this. But the really interesting thing about the current staging system is that there is no correlation between the grading and the patient's symptoms. So you can have the worst pain imaginable, but only have stage one disease and vice versa, which is just baffling. And we don't understand why this is the case. So perhaps my work will reveal something more about lesions that will enable a, a more... Um, Nuanced? A, 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 sorry? Nuanced? Yeah. <laughs> Some sort of scoring system that better captures the heterogeneity of the disease, how variable it is, but also why we get this disparity with the current system. And then big picture, this could potentially enable more targeted treatment because at the moment, after surgery, which is the main treatment, it's kind of whatever the doctor feels like. There's no real, not necessarily um, a a major guideline or logic to how you select follow-up treatment to, to maintain the patient's quality of life. So perhaps my work can shed more light on how we go about targeting treatment. Eliza, so for anyone out there who might want some further information about um, endometriosis, the disease, um, the effects living with it, um, support, is there somewhere that you can recommend they go? Absolutely. This is a, a, this sounds terrible, but it's a great time to have endometriosis. The awareness is increasing and so is the support. So we have um, lots of information on the Jean Hales website and the Royal Women's Hospital also have their own information resources. Jean Hales? Jean Hales, yeah. Yep. They do an incredible amount of work for the endometriosis patient community. We also have a lot of support groups that you can head to even just on social media, um, the main ones being Endometriosis Australia and Endoactive. Um, and they are also very heavily involved in the National Action Plan for Endometriosis that the government recently rolled out. So I think those support networks are going to increase as they receive more funding, which is excellent. That's fantastic news. That's what we need. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Now, for anyone listening who this might sound very familiar to, but they haven't been formally diagnosed, what would you what would you say to them? So I'd I'd say to to anyone experiencing any kind of symptoms 
that impact your quality of life, go and see a doctor and tell them your story and advocate for a diagnosis if you think you have endometriosis. And don't hesitate to get second or third opinions because we're still working on on clinical education and we're still working on um, how many doctors understand the symptoms of endometriosis. So don't be afraid to get a second or third opinion. And reach out to those support groups on Facebook and share your story and and find support in your area because it's definitely there. That's great to know. Eliza, thanks so much for joining us this week and bringing your personal stories and your science knowledge and research to this misunderstood and underdeveloped, under-researched area of women's health. Thank you so much. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So this is a big year for anniversaries, is it not? Yeah, 50 years since humankind walked on the moon. Yeah, that'll that be is, in, That is a big one. That'll be in July. I it's, imagine we'll have quite a bit to say about that one. We have, yeah, we definitely will. We should mark that in our diaries, I think. We should mark that down in our definitely. diaries. Yeah. It's also yeah. 150 years since, guess what, the International Year of the Periodic <laughs> Table. Now, 150 years since the periodic table was first published. Uh, yes, published. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We talked about that a quite, a bit, quite yeah. a bit. Oh, there may be an element in my in my or two in my story. Watch out Ooh. for them. Um, it's 100 years since the Spanish flu big outbreak. Uh, we should probably talk about that at some point as well, shouldn't mm. we? Yeah. Mm. And um, is this just generating um, future stories? Is that is this I'm what just, you're I'm just now? I'm actually now I'm doing about? that. Yeah. It's also like um, we'll, we'll be at the end of this year. Be 20 years since uh, the Y2K kind of whole. Fufuro. So when, when nothing happened. When nothing happened. But you know, it's an interesting thing to remember. 30 years since Tiananmen Square? It is 30 years. And not so scientific. However, it is 30 years since the controversial announcement of Cold Fusion by Fleischmann and Pons. Um, 30 years, did you say? 30 years. Right. Uh, in March 1989. So, and, and isn't the world such an amazing place now that we've all got Cold Fusion drives running everything? Isn't that just such a leap forward that it was... Uh, I'm detecting some sarcasm over on Stu's way. Yeah, you certainly am. But it's not, look, it's, the story is not completely over and there is still work being done on cold vision. But from a, well, if you'd listened to our show, I think a couple of weeks ago, you may have heard us complaining about technology. There may be another like technology <laughs> company involved in, in current cold fusion technology, but we will get to that. First of all, let us talk a bit about fusion, shall we? Um, You guys know what nuclear fusion is, do you not? Yeah. It's when you basically get atoms and you smash them together and turn them into other atoms. Yeah. You join two atoms together to make a large atom. Nuclear. 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 (laughs) Uh, It's a nuclear reaction, yeah. The nucleus. The nuclei, yes. Fusion together. This is the reaction that happens in the sun. Exactly, exactly. And in stars and, yeah. That's right. And the reason it happens in those kind of places. Um, so, okay, the ones that reaction you get in the, in the stars and that most of the fusion reactions that you see around the place, if you look around, you know, fusion reactions, is two <laughs> hydrogen nuclei joined together to make uh, helium. Right and releases large amounts of energy. Now, the problem with doing this, though, is that the nuclei have got a positive electric charge. And what do positive, two positive charges do? They repel. repel. They repel. So it's very hard to get them to join together. You need to smash them together very fast, very strong, very powerfully, which means you need high energies, high temperatures and pressures to do it. Like Something the like the sun. Like in the heart of a sun or in a hydrogen bomb. Right. Which is powered by it. They had a fission bomb that powered a hydrogen fusion mm-hmm. 
um, reaction and to get an even bigger explosion. That's how the hydrogen bomb came about. It's very hard to do under controlled conditions, however, which is why it is still an ongoing project with, you know, big reactors are always building and saying, oh, nuclear fusion is only 20 years off. It's always only 20 years off. It's been so for the last 50 years or so. Anyway, difficult to do, which is why when cold fusion was announced, it seemed so appealing. So cold fusion is intended to do it at a much lower temperature. When I say much lower temperature, like hot fusion, the normal one is about 20 million Kelvin. It's a pretty hot temperature. Yeah, that's, that's but this, quite hot. This is kind of trying to go to room temperature. That is pretty cold. That's pretty cold. So pretty we're, cold. Talking, we're talking uh, Doc Brown's Mr. Fusion on the back of the DeLorean kind of, you can just have one in your house. I do not know what's going on inside of that Mr. Fusion. And he was just chucking any old rubbish yeah. in there. <laughs> Banana peels, apparently. Yeah, yeah. There's enough hydrogen in them, right? Yeah, well, there is. But, you know, they often, yeah, they often use special kinds of hydrogen, which we will get to as well. Anyway, so, yeah, the idea for cold fusion has been around a while. But as I said, it became famous 30 years ago. Two scientists, Martin Fleischmann and Stanley Pons, announced that they had achieved it in their laboratory. Now, this announcement was very notorious, not just because of the controversy of the science itself, but the way they announced it, which was via a press conference before the paper had even been published. Now, they kind of jumped the gun in a big way. Partly, it seems, to ensure they had the patent on the process. There was another scientist that they had been working with, and they're a bit worried about the, you know, there might be some confusion over who had the patent. But of course, you know, this is also extremely high stakes. We're talking about an easy, cheap source of energy that yeah, would basically change the world, essentially. So it was, yeah, stakes were pretty, pretty high. But it is now kind of notorious in the annals of science as being a precedent for how not to release your research findings. People say, don't do a, don't do a Fleischmann and Pons. You okay. heard that? or Never heard that. Never heard that? Or no. This is cold fusion all over again. No? You I've, heard, I've that? heard that one. Okay. Yeah, yeah maybe. Mm. So in terms of the science, <laughs> what they had done was they built an electrolytic cell with heavy water and a palladium electrode. Now, an electrolytic cell does electrolysis, which is uh, like a simple thing is where you split water into hydrogen and oxygen by sticking electrodes in it. You, you know, split the molecule apart, the positive side, and goes one place, the negative goes to another one. Pretty straightforward. In this case, they use heavy water. So the hydrogen is actually deuterium, which is an isotope that contains one proton and one neutron, as opposed to the usual just single proton of a normal hydrogen nucleus. And what they claim to have found was when they did this with this um, this special um, electrolytic cell, they found to claim to have found that they got more heat produced than was explained by the energy put in or any kind of known chemical reactions. And they also claim that they detected neutrons being released as well. So these were clues that there was a nuclear reaction going on. So what they hypothesized was that something is happening inside the palladium electrode, that somehow it is absorbing the deuterium in such a way, in such quantities, that it's kind of getting the, the atoms close enough together that they will fuse inside the palladium. This is what their hypothesis was. Not calling it a theory because it's not a fully worked out theory. There is mm-hmm. no kind of working theory of cold fusion. Now, this, of course, caused an international media sensation. And suddenly, everyone was talking about palladium and how good palladium was. I said, there's a few elements popping up in this, isn't there? Yeah. 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 yeah Hydrogen, yeah. helium, palladium. But, uh, yes, of course, straight away what happens when you get something like this, other scientists try to replicate the results. And some of them did claim to have some success initially. But they were rushing. You know, everyone was rushing to try and, and replicate this. And they later found that they had made errors or there were simpler explanations for what they had found. And in about a month or so after the announcement, the hype was pretty much over. The New York Times declared it dead at the end of April 
1989. So, yeah, it didn't last long, and but it left a nasty kind of stain on science. Now, so fast forward 30 <coughs> years. Well, no, let's not go, quite go fast oh. forward because some people, some people persevered. Small numbers of researchers persevered on the fringes and they claimed that there was an energy revolution just around the corner. And I did read some of their work in the, in the early days and, uh, and I wasn't convinced, shall I say, but I also figured that if they were right, then as you said, Stu, we'd all be having cold fusion powered everything. Yeah. And yeah, you couldn't ignore it. Now, these experiments aren't easy to do, so you kind of have to be a proper scientist to do these experiments, which means that it's kind of a bit unusual for this sort of fringe science, because often they're complete crackpots who work here working on stuff. But these are like legitimate scientists who are attracted to this field. Um, they can't really publish their results anywhere because no one else accepts that this is a real thing. But they're still kind of working on this fringe stuff. You get the conspiracy theories abounding, you know, like that's, it's all being covered up by their big fuel companies, etc., like that. But anyway... This has been going on for the last 30 years or so. But now, now we can fast forward. Now we fast forward to uh, A technology years. company has jumped on the bandwagon. One of the biggest ones in the world, Google. Right. They, unsurprisingly, have a lot of money. And so they had decided to spend only about $10 million of it or so on re-examining cold fusion. Uh, they've got a team of about 30 led by Matthew Trevithick and that they got their team together in 2015 to do some experiments on cold fusion. Now, they're not just trying to blindly copy what Fleischmann and Pons did, but they're essentially trying to use everything that we've learned since in the last 30 years about material science and everything like that to do a more considered test and to examine some of the, the, the ways that it could possibly work, what could actually be going on inside the palladium if it's actually happening. And they have previously published an article in Nature Perspectives on their work. And do you know what they found? Uh, nothing. Nothing, pretty much. <laughs> <clears throat> I imagine it would have been bigger news if they had found something. <laughs> it probably would have been bigger news. But they do seem very optimistic. They seem surprisingly optimistic. Um, they have learned some things. They've, they've learned that <laughs> palladium does absorb a lot of deuterium, and more so at the vertices of it than at its faces. Um, and, they, yeah, they keep talking about the, they think the possibilities are still open. Uh, they've also been testing some other theories about – there's some other theories of cold fusion that they've been kind of examining as well and working out how to measure the heat from these supposed alleged reactions and yet still not have been able to, to find anything. So, yeah, look, they're, they're pushing on with it. Look, I find this story really interesting because – you know, it's being funded by Google, and these companies have so much money. This is like, you know, Elon Musk shooting a car into space or Jeff Bezos wanting to put people on the moon, that sort of thing. To a certain extent, it's kind of better that they're using their money than that governments are paying for it with public money. But then when you think about it, this is all our money. They've got their money from us anyway. So, yeah. yeah. It's a different kind of taxation in a way. It is a different kind of taxation. Yeah. But, you know, maybe something good would come out of it. I mean, it would be good if they could rule out cold fusion definitively, if their experiments could be definitive in that sense. But then, you know, it has been kept alive by um, fringe scientists, so they're likely not to accept any results. Um, disproving it, I imagine. And on the other hand, if somehow it does work out, then that would be extremely good. So... Yeah, look, we'll wait and see what they come up with. Um, I would say don't hold your breath, but it is, yeah, I think kind of find it kind of fascinating that companies like Google are jumping on to spend all their money on exploring the stranger edges of science, shall we say. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. 
and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.